You've stopped in at the guidepost. Brought to you by the American Saltwater Guides Association. Stock up on gear, grab a coffee at the counter, and get ready to hear incredible fish stories from the best captains on the East Coast and thought-provoking conversations with stakeholders and policymakers working to protect these fisheries. This podcast is presented by Costa Sunglasses. Hey everyone, welcome to the Guidepost. Uh, Tony here. We are going to talk an awful lot tonight about Louisiana redfish. <laughs> and what a, I'll tell you what, man, if I was playing Candyland, I'd be stuck in the molasses swamp right now. Um, if anyone's, anyone's old enough to play, uh, to play that game, um, you know, what a what a mess and boy do we we're gonna we're gonna do our best to unravel it so uh i have one of my top unravelers here uh bailey short captain bailey short how are you doing today we have a special guest too but bailey's gonna tell you all about them bailey wind was blowing today huh oh yeah i i didn't have to do my workouts today i got full shoulder back uh every upper body muscle you can think of pulling the skiff today so it was it was i guess you could call it fun it was something <laughs> it was cranking yeah i don't i don't i don't think the wind ever stops blowing so bailey we got a we got a guest today it's going to talk to us about the redfish quandary in louisiana that you have been following for quite some time in your in your life as a louisiana angler yeah, you know, I I would say it we it, I would say it would qualify a little bit as like a Louisiana fly fishing uh celebrity, Louisiana fly fishing uh legend a little bit. Um I mean, I grew up reading his fly fishing column in the Louisiana Sportsman for a long time. That was the only reason I bought the Louisiana Sportsman was to read uh catches articles in there and uh, he's super involved in the, uh, in the, on the conservation end. He's on the conservation board with, uh, fly fishing international and also a head of conservation for Gulf coast, uh, fly fishing and yeah. Catch Cormier. Um, I want to just thank you for jumping on here with Tony and I, like Tony said, and like I said, I've, I've looked up to your knowledge about this. You, you are responsible uh, a lot for me getting into this whole sport. So thanks for coming. Well, thank you guys. I really appreciate it. Uh, I, I like that you say a legend in the sport. <laughs> I never thought I'd get to that stage, but uh, I guess that comes with age. <laughs> you stick it around does. long enough. It, it, yeah, you stick around long enough. It's just kind of, uh, I think that's the nice way the younger people talk about people like you and I catch just instead of saying we're old as dirt, they just call us, they call, call you a legend, right? Um, so, so what a mess redfish uh i'm gonna i'm gonna give a quick rundown of the twists and turns and then i want catch to jump in and tell us about speckled trout because they're linked and the same problems that they face with speckled trout we're facing with redfish and it's it really blows your mind so um Back in, I guess, the very end of 2022, uh, LDWF did a great job on the redfish stock assessment, and, and the numbers were a little horrifying. Uh, they have less redfish now than they had in the black and redfish craze with all the gill nets. The fish were you know, well over 20 million individuals at their peak. They're down in 2021 they were down to 8.7 million i guarantee you they're lower than that now and ldwf had been having such a problem uh changing speckled trout regulations that they supported an option originally that was only a 35 percent reduction and it had an over 30 year rebuilding timeline for the spawning potential ratio so not to get too nerdy on this but Redfish are measured on a 30% escapement rate, um, but that's just a percentage. And there is a stock recruitment relationship. So there's it does matter how many big redfish are in the water. And that tells you a lot about how many little redfish are going to be born. Um, so 
they're not in a good place and and you need a lot of redfish to make a lot of baby redfish so in other words if you just look at a ratio a 30% ratio would you rather have 30% of 10,000 or 30% of 10 million right it's not a real good metric to measure the health of a stock how many are you know escaping and getting and becoming adult escaping from the marsh and becoming an adult so we were really looking at the adult numbers, which is the spawning potential ratio, and redfish really aren't going to be right and stable until we get back to that SPR level. And and what LDWF came out with was a 30-year rebuilding timeline to get the SPR back to target, but it would have gotten the escapement ratio back. But again, 30% of nothing is still nothing. They did this solely because, and this is where I kind of want catch to jump in give me about two more minutes catch they did this solely because of the problems they were having with speckled trout and it's amazing to me that they were having a hard time managing speckled trout because they grow like kelp and they spawn like rabbits actually they make rabbits envious um multiple times a month in the summer and and you know they're they're they hit their spawning age at 11 months so, I mean, it really shouldn't be tough to to manage these things. But there was like World War Three and speckled trout. We were focused on redfish. So we spoke with we spoke with LDWF and so we said, hey, we're, we want to we want a closer to 50 percent reduction, a little bit closer to that. And that'll get the stock rebuilt, rebuilt in 13 years. And to our surprise, the commission listened to us. Thank God. And and, you know really appreciate the commission doing that the state commission and they changed the recommendation from ldwf to our recommendation which was three fish in a tighter limit so we won that that the process in louisiana as it goes to the legislature we went to the legislature and got our ass kicked and they said no we're not we don't want this go back and make a compromise so we sat down, looked at all the numbers from the stock assessment, and we made the compromise that they suggested. And we moved, we made a broader slot, but still with three fish. And that was the compromise. We brought that back to the commission. And to our surprise, we won that too. Now it goes, now we think, okay, it's going back. It's going back to the legislature. Well, the next commission meeting, there's some tomfoolery and people have it added to the agenda, but not as an agenda item to be voted on. And there was some, you know, there's three dimensional chess with the process, some Robert rules bullshit. And then next thing you know, we're fighting for our lives again until one of the commissioners stood up and threw the bullshit flag and said, no, this isn't right. And then boom. We go back to the legislature. So this time we do our homework. We contact every single person that would listen to us on that. Well, we did our homework the first time too, but that's a whole other story. Um, we do our homework again. We establish relationships. There's a 30-day timeline. Well, that timeline's ticking, 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 ticking. As a matter of fact, it was going to run out in two days. Well, until some folks who clearly don't like redfish don't like redfish came in and said, well, let's take this back to the commission because if we've heard because of public comment, well, we won public comment. We won public comment and public testimony. We won written public comment. We won it all. Uh, then they said, well, it was just one commissioner who wanted it. Well, bullshit. The vote was four to two. So I don't really know how one, that's one. It sounds like there's just one commissioner who wants to roll it back. So here's the funniest thing, and we can get into that. Supposedly, there was the biggest conservation win in the history of the world when they moved the Menhaden fleet back 1,500 feet. That's right, folks from a quarter mile to a half a mile, and that's going to save redfish. And all these groups are running around doing victory laps. But what really happened was the governor came in and said, this is how it's going to be. 
and they were just good little boys and girls and stood up nice and straight and said, sir, yes, sir. And they got their asses handed to them. And they tried to save it by sending out all these press releases and getting all the, oh, look what we are, half a mile buffer, 1,500 feet, because they already had a quarter mile buffer. And essentially, they sold redfish down the river. Okay? So then they're running around saying they're saving redfish. And then here's the funniest thing. Within two weeks, they get this pulled out of the legislature with like two days left because they want to kill more redfish. You can't make this up. You honestly can't make it up. And if anyone wants to debate me on it, I welcome you to. I would be thrilled beyond words. Invite me anywhere and I will debate you. So catch, that's where we are right now. We're gearing up for another huge fight at the commission. I guess you have to win four times to get anything done. Um, and this is eerily similar to what y'all went through with speckle trout, is it not? Yeah, we uh, we went to battle against a certain group of conservation in their name over uh, getting the 20% reduction in harvest that was needed to get to the conservation standard. And we came in and we said we were the first group to say increase it to 14 inches. That's what every other state, the 11 other states that manage speckled trout besides Louisiana, every other state has a 14 inch minimum. And it's basically because you can, at 14 inches, speckled trout will have spawned twice. You can basically then have a harvest of 25, 30 fish and not impact the population. So we said 14 inch minimum size and uh, we got a compromise with uh, 13 inches, but we had to fight. I mean, it, it, it's surreal that we're fighting a conservation organization to get a meaningful uh, conservation measure for spied sea trout. But anyway, um, it was a battle. It took, uh, you know, this was an issue that came up in 2019. I remember just before the pandemic, we heard about the assessment for speckled trout. And uh, we started right then and there taking action. And uh, it seemed like, you know, we had all the momentum going. And then kind of like what's happened with redfish, it went back and forth, back and forth. And uh, but we were we worked we worked really hard. And this is a credit to our membership. We're not as large a conservation organization yet as as DU or TU or Wild Turkey Federation. We've been around since 1966. But only in the last five years have we uh, did we hire an executive director and decide, in addition to our core mission of promoting fly fishing, we're going to also be a major conservation organization. And uh, give you an example, uh, I was with the FFI Southeastern Council for five years. And during that time, we took three conservation actions. In the five years, I've been conservation director of the Gulf Council. We've taken 19 conservation actions. So we've been a lot more involved. But, you know, it takes a lot of work for a small group of people. And thank God for the guides like Bailey, and many others who came to our support, attended the meetings and spoke up. And we managed to get speckled trout. A meaningful speckled trout regulations passed. And... Uh, now we're seeing, then we've gotten to redfish in Menhaden all of a sudden like that. And I want to say something about the Menhaden uh, for a minute. Uh, for those who don't know, the proposal that was out there was to push the commercial Menhaden harvesting off to a mile. And off three miles off Rutherford and Holly Beaches, which are popular fishing areas in western Louisiana, and three miles off of Grand Isle, which is kind of a fishing resort community in southeast Louisiana. We, um, we were on the edge on that one. And granted, the governor was not on our side. I mean, he was opposed to that. Uh, he was um, in support with the Menhaden industry to push it in a little bit. But we had a much harder fight when we banned gill nets in Louisiana than we had with the Menhaden. We went against a, a, a legislature 
that was influenced by the Louisiana Restaurant Association. That's a powerful lobby to be going up against. We managed to get just enough votes in both committees, just enough votes in the House and Senate. And then we had to go against a governor who said he was going to veto that bill. And what he did was he just didn't sign it. And by not signing it, the bill became law, and we got a gillnet ban in Louisiana. If we had stuck to our convictions, we could have gotten that one mile of buffer established in Louisiana. And I still think if we had given up something, a quarter of a mile, maybe three to three quarters of a mile, but we not only gave up the half mile, we also gave up the three-mile buffer off of Holly and Rutherford beaches out there. And I can tell you, living in western Louisiana, there's a lot of people upset about that, a whole lot of people. Just to chime in on that, I mean, you know, we're talking about the speckled trout thing. We're talking about the gill netting thing. And, and we're talking about redfish here. And, and right now, I'd say the redfish regulation and the and the Menhaden stuff almost go hand in hand, really. And, you know, Catch, I just want to ask you, do you feel like I don't know if I've ever seen more universal support for like that mile ban with the three mile buffers? Uh, than anything else that's that we've been dealing with. I mean, the entire angling community, recreational anglers, there was really not much divide. There, I mean, who was against the mile and the three mile other than obviously the pogey industry? You know what I mean? Yeah, this is what I was telling people. We had all the momentum on our side. Massive. If you look massive. back when we went to, when we back, went back, went to the legislature with a bill for Manhattan, we basically got the, House and the Senate by a wide majority to support our bill. And it was only because the way our antiquated Napoleonic system of law that a senator, a, a chairman of a state of the Senate Natural Resource Committee, he can hold a bill to the last week of the session. And by then, it's, it'll die in the session. And so it'll never get voted on and never get to the governor's desk. And so that's what happened in the legislative session when we tried to do something with Medhaven. But we had more momentum now than we had then. We had the media. We had all this media attention and going for us and everything else. I just think we gave away the store. Yeah, I would agree. I, I was pretty shocked at how quickly, um, you know, uh, other organizations kind of backed off on their on their position on this thing. That was being trodden out as like kind of being the the fix all to all these things. I feel like people were using this mile buffer um, as like a, a reason to, to not do the redfish regulations so aggressively because we were going to push these pogey boats. We were going to push the Menhaden fleet out and that was going to save enough redfish to where we didn't even have to go down to this three fish thing. Um, I found it really interesting that such a flagship uh, issue was like so quickly just just folded in half, literally. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, there was when in that meeting, I, I, I wasn't at it, but I watched it on the, on, on the zoom, you know, it was like the second that anybody said, we don't want to do this. It was like, okay, we're not. And it's like, okay. <laughs> I mean, and then we, we have the distance just like that. So I would agree with you, Catch. I just I would chime in on that and say, like, all anybody listening to this, especially if you're like from Louisiana, I mean, and you were fired up about the Menhaden issues, because I know everybody was. I know people on my uh, side of the river over here on the east side of St. Bernard are really upset because that half mile buffer doesn't even get them out of the Breton Sound over here, so they're still going to be like up in our business. Um, so a lot of people are upset. Um, I would just say anybody that's upset about that um, with this redfish thing, this is the time, you know, to kind of make something right of something that went really wrong with the Menhaden uh, quote unquote compromise. Um, because that, like you said, I think we did give away the store and we can't afford to do the same thing, um, you know, right now with redfish, in my opinion, because that's kind of where we're at risk for. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, I'm going to mention something this about when um, before the original notice of intent came out for redfish at the commission 
meeting, I can't remember, this back uh, over a year ago. We had a conversation, the fly fishers, the Gulf Council of Fly Fishers International had conversations with the biologist. You know, we got together and we discussed it over. What I heard was that the minimum, the minimum recommendation for recovery was an 18 to 27 inch four fish limit with no slots. That was the minimum. And if you look at the charts they provide and everything, you can't do anything less than that. If you don't, need anything, that's no recovery. There's no exactly. recovery for redfish. And so yeah. when they came to the commission and when they spoke before the commission and they said, well, this is the minimum recommendation, for some reason, people must not have heard the word minimum in there. Because and now catch, they're saying catch, that's that your 100% was the right. recommendation. That's no, it's that was that was uh, they were so beaten up because it, you know you did a great rundown of the problems with speckled trout, but like if you really get into the nuances, it wasn't just fighting against what made sense. It was a it was a it was well, we hired our own scientists and they say your stock assessment's terrible. I mean, they were taking they were taking the state agency apart brick by brick. And that's not how we that's that's not how this association treats a state agency, uh, unless it's New Jersey and then they deserve it. But <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just actually I'm not. But, you know, it's, <laughs> but we don't treat state agencies that way. I mean, they went on a methodical constant drumbeat with their communications to to shoot holes in good science and i mean let's be honest catch the difference between an 11 inch speckled trout and a 14 inch speckled trout in the summer is about four to five months yes that's how fast they grow you can't take it on the chin for four months to get this stock back like that's not a our problems with stripers right now they don't fully recruit for eight years we're screwed it's not like 11 months they're making babies we are screwed and like <laughs> it you know it's so frustrating because every year i remember the last meeting with speckled trout catch i was watching it if they had just taken the damn regulations in 2019, y'all would be almost two thirds of the way rebuilt. And you're just starting now because of all the, the BS. And yeah, you're, you're making it more difficult. It's way more difficult now than it should have been. And, and we're going down that road with redfish and it's a little disturbing. Yeah, because redfish are a late maturing species. They got to go through four or five years in the marsh you know, in growing and before they reach maturity. And that's what a lot of people don't understand. There was a lot of anecdotal evidence at some of these commission hearings. Well, I'm seeing little redfish like I've never seen them before. Well, that's not a problem. The problem is all those little redfish have to get to be big redfish. And when you have situations where you've lost as much marsh as we've had, where we have, you know, um, issues now with more a winter freeze kills than we've ever had. We have twice as many anglers as we used to have, much more technology available to catch those. That's a tough deal for those little redfish to make it four or five years to maturity. It really is. Yeah, and so uh, you can see all the little redfish you want. Uh, it, it, it doesn't matter. It's how many of those get to be big redfish? And the only way you do that is you have to reduce the harvest. Well, and Catch, I want to circle back on something you said there uh, earlier, too, which I think is really important to just, like, touch base on a couple times, is the uh, what was recommended by um, the biologists of wildlife and fisheries that's being trotted out is, like, you know, we need to go with what the biologists recommended was the bare minimum. That was the absolute, look, I mean, I run my own business. I've been running my own business for 10 years and I didn't get there doing the bare minimum. I mean, come on. Uh, <laughs> <that> just, 
like, come on, guys. I mean, I, I just, when I'm hearing people get up there and say, well, we need to do what the biologist said and go to four fish, 18 to 27, because that's what they said to do. It's like, yeah, they said that's the least we can't, we have to do. That's the least. And, yeah. you know, I just think that's really important for people to understand because there is a, there, it's all, it's all, it's bordering like misinformation when you label it as the recommendation by the biologist because, no, this is this was just like if you can get higher, great, but you have to at least do this. Like, stop killing so many damn fish, guys. The hypocrisy, yeah. The hypocrisy is unreal. Yes, it is. And one minute you're hearing them say, "Listen to the biologists. Listen to what they say." And the next minute you you know you're trashing the biologist and saying they don't know what they're they're saying or doing. Uh, my wife was a fisheries biologist. My younger son is a biologist. He's a wildlife biologist uh, with a lot of work uh, done with the National Fish and Wildlife Service. I could tell you what they do is a lot of hard work. They're out there almost as much as you are, Bailey, on the water, taking samples. You know, this is, this, you know, they're not sitting behind some desk, you know, trying to figure it out. There's a lot of work that's done. There's a lot of people who do it. And uh, I don't tell, you know, my doctor uh, how to, you know, fix my uh, whatever. I have a little, you know, headache or something else like that. I go to him for uh, an analysis and what to do to, to fix my problems when I'm sick. Uh, there's a reason these people have do the work. They have all the equipment. They have the training and everything else to do it. What's really interesting is I got up there during the commission meeting just after one of these, this so-called conservation group got up there and trashed the biologist on the speckled trout uh, limit. And I said, uh, so I guess the 11 other states that manage speckled trout must not have something wrong. They must not know anything. Because all of their data seems to show that, you know, you know, if you harvest speckled trout over 14 inches, you're not harvesting entirely female speckled trout. So, and remember, one of the commissioners came, uh, uh, I think it was McPherson, said, uh, asked that organization whether or not, who were their biologists and could they get that information to them? And they couldn't. So this has just been very frustrating for me. And uh, some of the things I'm hearing, I just can't get over. And, uh, you know, it's just, it, you know, it blows my mind. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, again, I think there's a lot of stuff going on with the, with the pogey situation, with the redfish situation that's just borderline misinformation. I, I think, I, 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 again, just think that a lot of... Uh, Anybody that was like rallying behind that whole pogey deal being being like such a big deal needs to really realize that uh, that got kind of sold out. And now Redfish is about to do the same thing. I mean, we're, you know, conservation is not about making everybody in the room happy with every decision we make. We've got to make the right calls for the, you know, the ecosystem. And, and not everybody's going to be happy with it all the time, but that's OK. and everybody's trying to find these compromises and what we're going to do is just end up with a lame duck, you know, mediocre fishing for a very, very, very long time. And, uh, for the sake of quote unquote compromise. Well, one of the things that concerns me is I'm hearing that a possible solution might be a redfish hatchery. Yeah. <laughs> I can Listen. tell you because, you know, I've been involved in conservation organizations a long time, including uh, I was with Trout Unlimited for a while, uh, even though I live in Louisiana, there's no trout in Louisiana. <laughs> but uh, um, I can tell you hatcheries do serve a purpose. They, it, you know, in, in, for example, in southern tailwaters, if you didn't have hatcheries, you wouldn't have rainbow trout because the rainbow trout don't spawn well. In, in tailwater environments. Um, and so you have some world-class fisheries thanks to st stocking efforts. Um, they're using, uh, they're stocking uh, a flounder right now in Alabama. And that's because the warmer water temperatures of the Gulf are causing most of the 
XX chromosome uh, juvenile flounders to masculinize. And so what you're getting is like 90 and 95% male, tra uh, male flounder coming out uh, from the wild spawning. So what they're doing is they're using the hatchery to get those flounder uh, fingerlings to a certain size where they've already established themselves as females and then releasing them into the, the wild. So it does serve some purposes. But just to give you an idea, Texas stocks on average 19 million redfish fingerlings a year. Do you know what percentage of those get to be mature redfish? 1.8%. 1.8%. Now, how is that going to uh, impact or give us the, uh, the conservation standard? It won't. And to put that into perspective, isn't uh, like 20 million fish basically kind of where we were at when we when it was like at the heyday so to speak of like louisiana redfish population so they're basically stocking our like you know when we're sitting pretty with 20 million they're putting that in a year and getting you know a couple hundred fish or whatever a couple thousand fish out of it or whatever <laughs> yeah know. well and, and another thing is it's great that you want to stock but if you're taking out so much of the Groceries, as the biologists like to call it, the menhaden that they feed on, um, you know, then you're impacting their health. Um, what you're going to oh, yeah. have is a lot of skinny redfish swimming in the marsh. Catch, catch. You know, um, I I found it really interesting. So, and this is this is in line with redfish hatcheries, where I think I think the name of this podcast is going to be the Great Redfish Conspiracy or something, because uh, we're 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 talking about a lot of stuff. The great redfish and trout conspiracy, uh, you know, whatever. So, I found it really interesting <clears throat> that a couple of commission meetings ago, and this is all on video, and we've actually pulled the video. Um, I can't remember what commission meeting it was. It may have been all the way back to like October of last year, or maybe even a little bit further back, but. Louisiana has a law, and I think it's a good law, um, that if you waste natural resources, you have to pay restitution to those resources. So, like, let's say I shot a um, a black bear, or I mean, I it was fascinating watching the presentation because there was actually a different there was a different monetary value placed on like a four point buck, an eight point buck, a twelve point buck, obviously. You know, the bigger the animal, the buck, the more valuable it was to the state. So, like, I don't remember the exact number on deer, but let's say I shot a 10 point buck out of season and I got caught, I'd have to pay restitution to the tune of a couple thousand dollars. Uh, I remember a black bear was like $6,000. So, every time the Menhaden boats go out, there's a risk that the neck could tear. And why is this important? Well, when they're drawing that, when they draw the purse closed at the bottom and they're drawing the net in to vacuum the menhaden and, you know, if there's any bycatch in there, those fish are squished. They're pretty much dead. Fish aren't like humans. And, you know, they, they're meant to swim in water, not air. And they're stacking them on top of each other. You know, so like there was one tear, it was like, Sometimes they get snagged on something on the bottom. Sometimes sharks get after the net. There's a whole bunch of reasons why the net can tear. And then they spill out all these dead fish. And I think it was like 900,000 menhaden and a couple of, couple of you know, giant, couple hundred giant redfish and some jacks and some sharks. It's just a big mess. And the representative for one of these companies was at the commission hearing. This is all on video. Like I said, we've pulled the video. And he said, to make restitution, we're donating $25,000 to a redfish hatchery. I don't know how that makes restitution. And I, I appreciate their commitment to conservation and paying the fine. But I mean, LDWF needs a lot of resources. 
they there there are things that are on the back burner that would help them perform better science because they don't have the resources. So if somebody can explain to me, and, and maybe it wasn't, you know what? Maybe they just gave a donation. I don't know. If somebody can tell me why that restitution money isn't mandatory to go to LDWF to have better science and have better resources so we manage these fisheries better, I think the I think the biologists would appreciate appreciate that at LDWF. I think they would like better resources and better tools to perform their jobs to make science better. I don't want that money going to a hatchery. I don't know about the rest of y'all. Love to hear what you think about that. Okay. I'll just say there's a number of items on the agenda. I can tell you that for sure. Uh, a lot of things over at LDWF, they'd like to be working on, and uh, they just don't have all the financial resources to do so. And I'm just wondering, okay, you know, it, it's great if you want to build a hatchery. You can probably get the capital cost raised uh, to do the construction work and everything else. But that hatchery has to be managed. And so where is that money going to come from? And so, yeah, I mean, I, I have a hard time with it. You know, like you said, Tony, I mean, as a as a recreational angler, as a guide, as a user group in this, why is that? you know, restitution or donation or whatever, just basically decided what it's going towards. I'd rather, you know, take $25,000 away from a hatchery project than uh, give it to them. I mean, you know, I'm thinking we need to start changing some of these organizations name to like the Coastal Castration Association, because they're basically trying to just take away red wild redfish ability to uh, spawn out here, because that's basically where we're at. But, uh, yeah, I, I I find that, you know, that's crazy to me. I mean, just why would that not go to LDWF? Uh like what where where does that get agreed upon? And and how is that all right? <laughs> I just don't understand that one at all. Yeah, that 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 whole discussion at that meeting, uh that presentation by the uh representative representative of the Menhaden industry, uh kind of left me wondering. Uh -oh. How did that all get decided? Uh, there must have been, you know, some discussions outside, you know, in a little meeting room somewhere. <laughs> it just it just didn't add up. Well, it's just like why, you know, Catch, you're sitting here, um, you know, obviously head of conservation for Gulf Coast Council of the FFI. We're sitting here, ASGA. We're two associations involved pretty heavily in, in Louisiana, um, you know, conservation issues. We've definitely spent a lot more time talking about it than other groups about the redfish stuff. And, um, you know, they're getting the 25 grand. It's kind of, it's just really weird to me. And, and you know, I, I think that just doesn't make any sense as, as far as I'm concerned. And, and again, you know, I just keep kind of echoing myself here, but it's like anybody that's, that's, watching this from the outside, anybody that's trying to get involved with conservation in Louisiana, uh, there's a lot of things going on right now that I think if people that really wanted to get into conservation understood as far as like what Tony just brought up with that donation, um, that aren't really in the best interest of the fishery whatsoever. Um, and it's getting pretty convoluted um, with you know, motives and unfortunately money. And here we are fighting for redfish on the, on the final days of when this thing should have gotten passed. I mean, this thing should be a law. I, well, a law, this thing should be a, you know, regulation changed. We're done. So on and so forth. I, 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 I am shocked. I, you know, when we saw um, people mentioning that redfish was going to be brought up at the March 7th meeting, uh, Catch, I remember calling you. We didn't even think this could be done. This shouldn't even be on the agenda. Oh, from a from a legal perspective, Bailey, correct. Yeah. 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 I mean, it was supposed to be the the oversight period had gone through, passed, done deal. Three fish, and here we go. And somehow, once again, this gets brought up somehow, and it's like Groundhog Day. That's a good analogy. Groundhog Day. You're right. Uh, I mean, I was talking to my wife the other day. 
She said, uh, how many meetings have you been to in Baton? Because I drive from Alexandria to Baton Rouge, which is two and a half hours. And she said, uh, I said, well, this is nine in the last year. <laughs> it was Good funny. The, you know, first few years, I was conservation director. I made one meeting and that was it because it was just one meeting where there was an issue. But this is the same issue or same two issues. Yeah. Uh, Manhattan and Redfish. Yeah. And uh, it's just crazy that we have to go back and forth and back and forth like this. Um, and I'll tell you something, and I don't mean to demean the commission because I'm, I'm sure those gentlemen mean well on everything. But if you recall, we had a commissioner who's new to the board um, get up and, and, and say that uh, prior to his appointment, which was a, a few months back, he had no idea what a Menhaden was. And I, it just blew my mind. Because how do you not know the, one of the four largest commercial fisheries in Louisiana? You have shrimp, you have oyster, you have crawfish, you have menhaden. How do you not know that? And so, well, and be a commission member. Now. <laughs> <laughs> he's getting, he's getting, he's probably uh, tired he's of hearing about it. <laughs> he's, he's been, it's like when they strap you to the chair and make you watch like I Love Lucy for 10 hours straight or something. I mean, He's been he's been uh some kind of torture chamber having to talk, listen about Menhaden every day now. So he definitely he might be an expert now. <laughs> I was talking to Bailey earlier today, and we were talking about believe it or not something not related. To, well, actually, it was related to redfish, but um, we were doing we're doing some work on some other stuff and someone made a comment like, Oh, you know, some people are, aren't gonna, aren't gonna do that. And I was like, yeah, what else is new? Like you just described every day of my life. Like, yeah, you make these, you don't, you know, you want to be popular, sell ice cream, right? Don't be a leader in in conservation because you have to take hard positions and people aren't going to like you i mean i i've gone into meetings and i've literally read verbatim from a stock assessment that i had nothing to do with the basic equivalent of me opening up a newspaper and reading an article that i didn't write and people wanted to hang me from the yard arm outside right they wanted me dead. And I'm like, this is the stock assessment that we're basing all these decisions on, you fools. Like, I, this is the science. I, I mean, that makes you mad or just my mere presence makes you mad. So, you know, point is, you're not going to make everyone happy. So that's a that's a fact. The other way that you have to look at this is you, the resource has to win. It's not like, oh, this guy's business model has to win. I'm going to pick this person over this person. If the resource wins, everybody wins. The people who the people who need to kill a couple of redfish for their business, they win. The people who need to run into a bunch of big redfish to catch and release them, they win. The state wins because they're getting all the money from angler expenditures pouring into the state. Everybody wins. And I just I don't understand if somebody could explain to me how anyone could take a different position than that. Then, then if you, if you just take a breath and you think something longer term than tomorrow morning, don't you want to be doing this in 20 years? Whether you're a pop and cork guy who is going after their limit or a fly guy who doesn't kill anything. Don't you want to be doing this in 20 years? Because let me tell you something. Redfish catch, like you said, about six years. 
to 100% recruit to a breeding population, okay? That's a long time. And here's the other thing. Risk policy. What's your risk policy? I have a risk policy. I have a risk policy about 40-foot extension ladders because I almost fell off one. I don't get on them anymore. Uh Uh-uh. Nope. I have a risk policy about a lot of things. I have a risk. I have a lot of risk policies about my wife. Don't make her mad. Risk policy number one, right? So catch you detailed. The marsh is disappearing. Louisiana's got about 10 million different things working against it. Do you really want to push the most important species to the edge? When it's at numbers lower than the black and redfish days, is that a good idea? Because you move the Menhaden boats 1,500 feet. Who buys? Who is buying into this? I need to know. I need to know who is buying into that narrative. Because apparently, you can just make whatever you want up, and if you say it enough, people believe you. It's it's amazing. Hey, hey, Tony, I think you touched on something there earlier in that little monologue you just gave. Everybody that's involved in this right here is a sport fisherman. We don't have a commercial fishery for redfish. This is all sport fishermen debating among ourselves. What do sport fishermen do? We go out and we enjoy the thrill of catching a fish. That's what I, I, I used to go out in the marsh and I would in my kayak and I'd catch 25, 30 redfish in a day. I didn't keep that many. I didn't even keep five, you know, because the kayak, you know, three redfish, you put three redfish in your bag or your string and that's all you can handle. But uh, you did for the sport. I mean, it was fun. OK, and taking home something to eat is secondary. It's all about the enjoyment of being out there and catching fish. And I know when I took my kids out there and they caught their first redfish and they were all under 10 years old when they did so, that was a thrill, you know, they still remember to this day. And it's a thrill I want to have for my grandkids and everything else. And you're not going to have that if you have this mentality that the marsh is a meat market, you know, and that's what we should be, you know, we want to be able to keep a, a five or six redfish. No, you got to think of it as we want to be able to catch five or six or maybe quite a bit more redfish and maybe bring a couple home or three home uh, if we want to. Uh, that's what, because that's what sport fishing is all about. That's what we're supposed to be all about as recreational fishermen is enjoying the catch, enjoying the experience of going out in the marsh, catching a few redfish, having a great day uh, with what God, you know, gave us, uh, blessed us with here in Louisiana. I've seen numerous uh, articles, and Bailey's probably seen them too, where Louisiana is rated either the third or fourth best fly fishing destination in the country, and it's because of redfish. We could do a whole nother podcast where you get me on here pontificating about why Louisiana is the best domestic saltwater fly fishery, you know, there is. I think it's the best. I don't think you, there's a more accessible um, saltwater fly fishery in the world. When you talk about accessible in two different ways, the proximity to New Orleans, um, how easy it is to get here, how inexpensive it is to get here. And then also the accessibility uh, back when the fish weren't like, they are now in my part of the state, which is like absolutely like I think they could tie the flies we're throwing at them. Uh, they're getting so smart. Um, like, uh, you know, it's accessible because people can catch them. I mean, if you put a fly in front of a redfish, they're usually going to eat. Um, and you're seeing a change. I mean, I had a fish today. We, it was this big old 25, 30 pound redfish trophy fish where people come down here from all over for this guy's from North Carolina. Um, always wanted to come here. He's fished all over the world. Um, this thing's coming down the bank, waking down the bank. I call it out. I'm like, get ready. We had like 60 feet of time. Like we're watching this thing. The second it got about 45 feet and it saw the, like my angler false casting. He had, he could have gotten there if he was like on it, 
But I mean, that fish just boosh shot right out of there. Like, I mean, he had seen the song and dance. He's like, three false cast. I'm not eating that. Get out. And he swam away. Bailey, you described a problem right there. That's the result of one, much more fishing pressure and two, much fewer yep. redfish for competition. Absolutely. Oh, I, I think, you know, I've named my redfish and they've named me at this point. It is, I think we, we've begun some type of relationship uh, over the last year or so. It's getting a little... I was talking to Greg Moon, who's like my business partner about this. I mean, there's a few areas right now where I'm confident those fish can like tell you what kind of boat I drive. <laughs> I mean, they, they know. It's bad. But I mean, yeah, it's scary. I mean, when you're thinking about it like that, I I don't, I don't mind admitting that. I mean, it's like, you know, catch the last uh, when you were talking, it rem just reminded me of, you know, kind of pivotal moments in my life. And I, you know, the first redfish I caught killed it dead. And because I, you know, because it was like, oh, you know, my grandfather is like, oh, Tony caught a redfish clunk. And, you know, your grandmother's going to cook it up for you. And they lived in Kenner. Uh, we were fishing on Lake Pontchartrain. And um, and I just caught my first speckled trout right before that. And, you know, my family grew up with redfish. And my my parents ultimately moved to Charleston. And I'm, I'm not kidding when I say this. My, my mom was in hospice at home at her, at their place on right on the Ashley. And um, and she was pretty upset when she saw me for, you know, for a variety of reasons, probably a lot of disappointment um, <laughs> in my life. But, you know, she, I said, Mom, is there anything I can do to make you feel better? Like anything, name it. I'll punch dad in the face like whatever you want, whatever will make you smile, I'll do it. And she goes, go catch a big redfish and fix it for me for dinner. That's how connected we are to redfish. Like that's, that's the last redfish I killed. I just, I wasn't, yeah, I didn't even, it didn't register until you were talking about taking a couple of redfish home in your kayak, but I've caught a lot of redfish since then, I mean, it's only been what, you know, two years, um, but I haven't killed another one. I just, I don't know. I don't know why, if it's just something in my brain or I just don't feel like cleaning one. Um, but yeah, that's, that's how important they were. Um, that's how important they are to us. And that's how important they are to countless families. I am not the only person with a story like that. I am not the only person with a story like that. And like when you look at kind of the selfish side of just recreational fishermen, no commercial fishing allowed in Louisiana, you kind of wonder like what, like, do you not have like a sportsman's soul? Like how, how could you not look at this issue and want to help instead of say, keep things as close to the same as possible. I have, I, I don't understand that. I have a problem understanding that. Yeah, being a good Cajun like I am, I, uh, I, you know, I enjoy keeping one or two redfish to eat. I never freeze my redfish. Uh, for one thing, that gives me another excuse to go out fishing. Uh, I can't catch one, but uh, you know, I, I it, people don't understand. Uh, you know, if you catch one or two. 22, 24-inch redfish, that's a lot of food. That's a lot of meat. Uh, and uh, so it's a good thing. But I want to get back to something that the founder of Fly Fishers International said. That was Lee Wolf. He was on, people, this may be way above you, <laughs> of your listeners' age, but he was a um, frequent guest on American Sportsman TV outdoor show back in the 60s and 70s. And uh, he's most famous as being the father of catch and release. And he said that a trout is far too valuable to be caught only once. And it was his discussions with Ray Scott that led to Ray Scott promoting catch and release for bass fishing. Now, I'm not, a, you know, I'm not saying everybody should go out there and release everything they catch. If you want to keep one or two fish and bring them home or 
three fish is the limit we're talking about. That's fine. But uh, this should never be about um, putting fish in the freezer, you know, going out and, you know, doing a meat haul, whatever. We have to keep this in in the uh, perspective that this is a sport and we're we're sport fishing and we're doing this to enjoy and, and just being out on the water. Even if I don't catch a fish, it's often a good day for me, you know, just being away from the house and the wife and the work. <laughs> that's, that's a great day. <laughs> <laughs> I hear that. Man, I'm glad I didn't say that. If I had said that catch, I'd be like, I'd be like, Cody, Cody, edit, hit, mash that edit button. Um, So, uh, yeah, you know, I just want everyone, I want to kind of leave everyone with this thought. And, and I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying the podcast is over by any stretch of the imagination, but I want everyone that's listening to it to know that we're going to fight like the third monkey on the ramp to Noah's Ark uh, coming up here on March 7th. I mean, we're going to, we're going to go into that room and we're going to be respectful and we're going to be well-informed and we're going to give great testimony and we're going to do everything that we can and let the chips fall where they may. Um, Cause that's all you can do, but we're not, we're not fighting for our egos. We're not fighting. Um, you know, just because we have a selfish view of how we want the fishery to be for our businesses, we're really, I mean, we're fighting for the resource because it's, it is a magical, magical place and it deserves to be treated for what it is. It is a national treasure. And I can look out the window in my office and a block away is the Chesapeake Bay. And right now, the only thing I can say about it, Bay, is it is a cautionary tale of where you don't want to be. If you love a fishery that you grew up with and is in your backyard and is special to you and just made a million memories. That's why we're so entrenched in fighting so hard for this and trying to tell all of our listeners the truth. Everything that we've said on this podcast is the truth. Everything that you will ever hear from us is the truth. It is what has happened. There's video evidence. We are fully supporting the science. Um, We are supporting the resource. We care about it deeply. It's no selfish motivation. What we want more than anything is to give the next generations the same opportunities that we have or close as close as we can get. Um, Amen. You know, absolutely. Um, and, and it's, I think the more that you love something, the harder that you fight for it. And if you, you truly love it, it almost doesn't even matter if you win or lose. And I'm not trying to set any, I mean, Jesus, we've been, this will be what, I don't even know. Catch, you've been nine times in the past year, Bailey and the crew. I don't even know how many times they've been. I mean, I, I my frequent flyer miles. I think if I book another flight somewhere, I think my wife's going to get to fly for free with me for the rest of the year or something. I'm hitting so <laughs> many. I mean, we're, we're trying as hard as we can. Um, and we're, you know, we're glad that we've kind of built this guides association community. We're glad FFI has come out on a powerful position on, on a lot of conservation issues over, you know, the past couple of years when they've changed directions. And I think the big thing is folks is that like, we're going to need everyone. We're going to need all of you. Um, for all of these issues and we got to build that kind of conservation community uh, where we all fight for each other. We'll come to Louisiana and we'll help catch and Bailey. You know, we'll go to Florida. We'll deal with an issue there. We'll go to North Carolina. We'll deal with an issue there. Um, But we can build this community and it can make a difference. So, you know, it's just another fight. It's just another day. Kind of all the same thing. 
It's all, it's all, it's all the same. They, the fish just look a little different. It's all they, everything's got the same problem. Um, so I don't know. Catch, you want to leave the audience with any, uh, any parting thoughts or words? Uh, Tony, uh, thank you so much for having me. And, uh, Please, everybody, if you can go to our website, it's FFIGCC.org. And you can learn about what needs to happen, what's going on, and who to contact uh, in this fight to get the uh, redfish uh, recovery. Catch, we will see you without a doubt on the 7th. I look forward to... Uh... Look forward to spending you a little bit of time with you in that room. It should be uh, should be a little ruckus. Um, <laughs> always is, um, and I really appreciate that. I appreciate the time to you, you got on this podcast to tell everyone about FFI, y'all's efforts down in the Gulf. Um, I can see us partnering with a hell of a lot of things um, that y'all are doing, you know, in the Gulf and in other areas and where we can team up and, and help make a difference. Bailey, I hope, the wind, I hope the wind doesn't blow as hard for you tomorrow, sir. It's um, supposed to be just as windy with clouds. <laughs> so if you can see the thousand yard stare on the <laughs> beginning. I'm sure, I'm sure they'll behave for you tomorrow, Bailey. Oh yeah. Well, hey, man, look, look at it this way. At least there ain't any bugs if it's blowing 30 miles an hour, right? Uh, I'll take the wind over the bugs right now. I'll take the winds over the bugs, man. I'll take the wind over the bugs. So, Catch, thank you, sir. Maybe we'll have you on here again. And uh, we appreciate everyone listening to the Guidepost. <laughs>